So a poem or two to start with. This from W.S. Merwin. Every year without knowing, this is a poem called, excuse me, it's called For the Anniversary of My Death. Every year without knowing it, I have passed the day when the last fires will wave to me and the silence will set out, tireless traveler, like the beam of a lightless star. Then I will no longer find myself in life as in a strange garment, surprised at the earth and the love of one woman and the shamelessness of men. As today, writing, waiting for the rains, hearing the wren sing, and bowing, not knowing to what. Every year without knowing it, we also pass that day, that mystery of our own death. And another poem, tonight's beginning. This more of a blessing. Benediction, may your trails be crooked, winding, lonesome, dangerous, leading to the most amazing views. May your rivers flow without end through pastoral valleys whose flocks sing with bells, past temples and castles, primeval forests and mysterious swamps, and down into a desert of red rock, blue mesa domes and pinnacles, and down into an ancient chasm where bars of sunlight blaze on profiled cliffs and deer walk across the white sand beaches, where storms come and go and lightning clangs on the crags, and something strange and more beautiful and more full of wonder than your deepest dreams waits for you beyond the next turning of the canyon walls. I start this evening with poetry, which we'll do some more of tonight, because poetry attempts to do in its way what spiritual teachings of all kinds um, are intended for in our lives, to shift our vision, our perspective, from the small sense of self, the world of commerce, that we all engage in, and the body of fear that dogs us, and to allow us again somehow to listen and touch that which is mysterious and great and beautiful that is our own life. Because in fact, the teachings of spiritual life, and there are all these things about how you should develop this and do that. But they're not really so linear or developmental. They more speak to a fundamental beauty that is there in each one of us to be reawakened, you could call it, our Buddha nature, our true nature. So Alfred North Whitehead, the philosopher, said, science is... I need my glasses for this one. Science's exclusion of aesthetics was its most disastrous error. There is something that we need as deeply as we need bread, if you will, which is that beauty that shines in the world around us and is part of us and is forgotten, especially in a culture and a time which is characterized often by the absence of the sacred. And so tonight I want to talk in these terms, and particularly to talk about poetry, because it's a political season again, um, and I would call it an appropriate antidote. This is a poem some of you may remember from a couple of years ago. It's called A Charm Against the Language of Politics. After watching TV, 
say over and over the names of things, the clean nouns, weeping birch, bloodstone, tanager, damask rose. Read field guides, atlases, gravestones. At the store, bless each apple by kind, Macintosh, wine sap, delicious, Granny Smith, Jonathan. Enunciate the vegetables, okra, parsnips, calendula. When you have compared the politicians' slippery platforms, chant the spiders, comb-footed, round-headed, orb spider, garden cross, feather-legged, ogre-faced, black widow. Remember that most short verbs are ethical. Hatch, grow, spin, trap, eat. Dig deep, pronounce clearly, pull all the words in over your head, and hole up for the duration. (laughs) (laughs) That poem is by Veronica Patterson. There's a way in which the busyness of the world that we live in and the politics of the time and the near addiction of the society and the drums of war and the continuing dilemmas of those who are hungry in one place and another place where there's grain elevators with food is a loss of connection with something that is so tender and real and immediate within our hearts. It's a connection to that which is beautiful and just. There was a study done some years ago in London um, about the crime rates in a particularly bad part of the city. And what was done, and there's something a little bit unjust about the study, but nevertheless interesting, was the two streets which had relatively high crime rates in this neighborhood in London, some parallel to one another and some, you know, number of blocks apart, were chosen. And one of the streets was targeted for beautification and cleanliness without the neighbors and residents knowing it. Extra trees were planted. The street sweepers and cleaners went through there every day. Graffiti was removed. Um, All the things that would make the street beautiful that the city could do in a simple and straightforward way were done. And then at the end of a year, the crime statistics were measured. And the street that was beautiful had 50% lower crime rate than the street that was not tended six or eight or ten blocks away. John Ciardi puts it this way, speaking of our bodies, an ulcer is an unkissed imagination taking its revenge for having been jilted. It is an undanced dance, an unpainted watercolor, an unwritten poem. What are we here for in this life if not to love one another and love this earth and make beauty? Particularly because there's so much tragedy in the world in so many ways that we know and carry. One of the great human answers is to throw our art, to throw our beauty into the face of the sorrows of the world. One professor at Columbia University writing about the art department in which he worked talked about the struggle after 9-11 of the people in the department to write their poetry and paint their paintings and make their music. He said, I walked around the department and people were, of course, in shock because they lived in Manhattan. And many came to me and said, it seems so meaningless. How can I make art at a time like this? Whereupon he posted on the bulletin board of the department part of a description and poems that were found 
written on toilet paper that was wrapped up in small packets and stuffed into the light fixtures and sockets in the uh, concentration camps of Buchenwald and Auschwitz. People knowing they were going to die and writing a poem before they did so. Because the place from which true art comes is really the place, if you will, of the soul or of that which is great in us. Rumi puts it this way. He says, don't run around this world looking for a hole to hide in. There are wild beasts in every cave. The only real rest comes when you're alone with the divine. Live in the nowhere that you came from, even though you have an outward address here. That's why you see things in two ways. Sometimes you look at a person and see a cynical snake. Someone else sees a joyful lover, and they're both right. Everyone is half and half, like the black and white ox. But you, you own two shops, and you run back and forth. Try to close the one that's a fearful trap, getting always smaller. Keep open the shop where you're not selling fish hooks, where you're the fish swimming free in the ocean. Or as the poet Hafiz puts it, fear is the cheapest room in the house. I'd like to see you in better living conditions. (laughs) Sometimes the greatest political act is to turn on Mozart and turn off CNN, or walk in the sunset, or read a beautiful poem, or breathe. I have this poster that was given to me by friends who were working for all those years in the um, shelling of Sarajevo of this man that some of you may have heard of named Vedran Smolovich, the cellist of Sarajevo, who would go out even during the shelling of the city every afternoon in the snipers and pull out his cello and play to the people of Sarajevo so that they wouldn't forget the beauty that was there in human hearts as well. And so, as we come into this political season, particularly, there needs to be an antidote, a retrieval of beauty, And that beauty not as a denial of sorrows, but as the grace that holds the 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows of the world. In that way, meditation, spiritual practice, and poetry itself is that. In, In language, the expression of that grace is poetry. You can't get the news from poetry, yet men and women die every day for lack of what is found there. Or Gabriela Mistral, who was the great Chilean poet that preceded Pablo Neruda. In fact, the true story is that Gabriela Mistral, who was well known at the turn of the century, is one of the great Latin, Latina poets. She had a 16-year-old boy walk over the Andes and come to her village with a sheaf of paper in his hand saying, please read these. And she'd had many students who'd come and she'd kind of dismissed them all. And she read the poems in this one young boy's hands and said, you are a true poet. You must never stop writing. And that was Pablo Neruda. So she is the one that blessed him in his work. And she writes, what the soul does for the body, the poet does for her people. Or as, again, the 
Middle Eastern poet. I love quoting Rumi and Hafiz in these times when everybody thinks that Middle Easterners are evil and the barbarians. And yet, if you ever have a chance to go into a Bedouin village and be treated by the graciousness of that culture. So the Sufis, Hafiz, he says, the great religions are ships. Poets, the lifeboats. Every sane person I know has jumped overboard. (laughs) That's good for the poetry business, isn't it, Hafiz? (laughs) Poetry is the music of language. And Buddhism is filled with poetry, the 100,000 songs of Milarepa, the beloved poet of Japan, Ryokan, who tries to express the beauty of his heart and what he sees to remind people. He says, if someone asks my abode, I reply, the eastern edge of the Milky Way. How's that for an address? (laughs) But the Buddha as well used a lot of poetry. He said, the fragrance of incense can travel as far as the wind. The fragrance of rose bay, sandalwood, and jasmine floats on the breeze. Ah, but the fragrance of deeds well done rises even to the realms of the gods. Or he goes on, the night of his enlightenment, O house builder, builder of this house of sorrow, you are seen at last Broken as the rafters, destroyed as the ridgepole, the rafters of attachment and clinging, free am I, joyful at last. His first words were a poem. Sometimes it's just tender little poems. The Zen master Isa particularly liked to write about other beings, the little tiny ones. Don't worry, spiders. I keep house casually. (laughs) His little haiku. Or, here's, this is a whole world, right, in about seven words. One human being, one fly, a large room. (laughs) Oh... Don't kill me, says the fly. Can't you see? It's wringing its hands. It's wringing its feet. Again, Isa. Isa loved all the little creatures of the earth. Thich Nhat Hanh, that wonderful and wise poet and meditation teacher, said, probably in his most famous passage, If you can see with the eyes of a poet, you will see in every piece of paper there's a cloud floating in here. Without the cloud, there'd be no rainwater. The trees would not grow, and without trees, you could not make the paper. So the cloud is in here. The existence of this paper is codependent with the existence of all the clouds that ever there were. Paper and cloud are so close And sunshine, the forest cannot grow without. And the logger who needs sunshine to cut the tree, and the logger's mother and father, and the logger's wife who made his lunch that day when he cut down this tree, and all the things that exist if you can see with the eyes of a poet. A poem on breath. Because in poetry, in a few lines, you tell the truth. Whose breath was it when I inhaled life for the first time? Did it come from the north, the south, the east, or the west? I am breathing this ancient breath of dust and shadows, this invisible bridge 
that connects the dance of gazelle to the shimmering leaves. Who are you? A shepherd from the Elbers Mountains, a lost Mongol warrior? Is this the breath of a joyous boy running through the wheat field of hope? Or is this the breath of a visionary man chained in the darkness of the emperor's prisons awaiting morning execution? Who are you? You go on and on, appearing in me like jasmine blossoms, like the unresisting body of a lover, like waves of the ocean, like an empty nest. I breathe and take you in from Isle Negra. I take you in from Konya and Shiraz. I take you in from the rocky mountains and the weeping willow. I take you in from a blade of grass and from nothingness. And you go on breathing life in me from moon to moon and sunset to sunset, from my birth to death, till I am ready to breathe in you that ancient breath of dust and shadows. So simple. This life breath that we practice with in meditation that comes when we're born and leaves as we die. You want a little space around poems. There's this big silence that's always around us. This vast silence that surrounds all that we do, no matter how noisy or busy it is. And poetry also points us to that. And when we step out of the small sense of self, we can breathe again. Relax. Not try to control the world so much. A little Zen verse. Don't draw another's bow. Don't ride another's horse. Don't speak of another's faults. Don't even try to know another's affairs. How's that for advice? (laughs) A few simple lines. Could change your life, honey. Or these two lines from Emily Dickinson, the same, just a moment. Because I did not stop for death, he kindly stopped for me. Just that. You don't think so? I wait and see. Or she writes, I'm nobody. Who are you? Are you nobody too? Thank you, Emily. She was a secret Buddhist in there. (laughs) We have all these ideas that we get caught in about how things are. And the poet, the storyteller, the moment of meditation brings us back to something bigger and more amazing. You know, it's so easy to get caught up in our day. A little story. So a mother was driving along in her car, bringing her daughter to uh, kindergarten. And the mom happened to be a doctor. And so the little girl is there in the front seat, her little car seat. And um, as they're going off to kindergarten, the little girl reaches into the mom's bag and pulls out the stethoscope. How nice, her mother thinks, maybe my daughter will grow up. And, go to college and medical school and become a doctor like me. You know how parents are, right? Some of you are parents. All of you had them. (laughs) All these ideas we have. The little girl puts the stethoscope in her ears and starts playing with it, you know. It's like, oh, she's playing doctor. And then she picks up the little end that, uh, you know, you put on the heart or whatever. And she talks into it and she says, Welcome to McDonald's. Can I take your order, please? 
You see what happens when you start to meditate, if you're honest, is that you see all your ideas about how the world is supposed to be, and then you actually have the experience of the world itself, which is much more unruly and unpredictable and amazing than our ideas can even begin to touch. You sit and your fears and joys, the unfinished business of the heart, the ideas that you have, the ones that worked and the ones that failed, all of those, what Emily Dickinson called the mob within the heart, shows itself so simply. This is Carl Sandburg. There's a wolf in me, fangs pointed for tearing gashes, a red tongue for raw meat, the hot lapping of blood. I keep the wolf because the wilderness gave it to me, and the wilderness will not let it go. There's a fox in me, a silver-gray fox, and I sniff and guess and pick things out of the wind and air and nose in the dark night. There's a hog in me, a snout and belly, machinery for eating and grunting and sleeping satisfied in the sun. There's a fish in me. I came from salt blue water gates and scurried with shoals of herring and blue water spouts with the porpoise. There's a baboon in me, clambering, clawed, dog-faced, yapping a gowloot's hunger, hairy under the armpits. There's an eagle in me and a mockingbird, and the eagle flies among the rocky mountains of my dreams and fights among the Sierra crags, and the mockingbird warbles in the underbrush of my Chattanoogas of hope. Oh, I got an eagle and the mockingbird from the wilderness. I got a zoo, a menagerie inside my ribs, under my bony head, under my red valve heart. And I got something else. It is a man heart, a woman child heart. It is a father and mother and lover and came from God knows where and going to God knows where. For I am the keeper of the zoo. And I say yes and no and I sing and kill and I am a pal of the wilderness. I came from the wilderness and the wilderness will not let me go. Thank you, Carl. Just sit for a few minutes if you don't believe that, right? Your mind will do anything. It has no pride, right? It plans, it remembers, it imagines, it does reruns. Sigmund Freud put it this way, he said, wherever I've gone, a poet has been there before me. So how do we relate to the zoo that is who we are? The meditation, the teachings of wakefulness and presence is an invitation to a wholeness, to an aliveness in the midst of it all. People come to meditation sometimes thinking they're going to get away. Ha ha ha. <laughs> but where can you go? The problem is that you know who goes with you, right? This poem from Thomas Carlyle. It's good to use the best china, the most genuine goblets, the oldest lace tablecloth. There is a risk, of course, every time we use anything or anyone shares an intimate moment, a fragile cup of revelation, but not to touch, not to handle the artifacts of being human is the quiet crash, the deadly catastrophe where nothing is enjoyed or broken, spilled or spoken, where nothing is stained or mended where nothing is ever lived, loved, laughed over, wept over, where nothing is ever lost or found. So the journey of spiritual life is to give ourselves more honestly and truly to each moment of life with a great heart of compassion, that is there in you, the Buddha nature, and with the spacious wisdom of the Milky Way, your address. Rumi, 
that wonderful, amazing poet, in the Mathnawi, which he called the ocean of poetry, a hundred thousand verses, whatever it is. He just, I mean, he just kind of kept channeling the poetry and the people around him wrote it down. It was like Mozart, you know, Mozart said that he, he really didn't compose the music, he heard the music, and then he wrote it down as fast as he could. We actually all do that, you know. I mean, in our own way, the moments that we paint or write or love one another deeply or do something on this earth that comes from that creative spirit, it comes not just to you, but through you. So Rumi says that this spiritual journey that we take of presence and compassion has, in his poetic language, three stages, the camel, the lion, and the child. And you can hear how in the images they touch that part of knowing in ourselves. The camel symbolizes devotion, commitment, repetition, service, giving oneself, what Gandhi called blessed monotony. Right? Let me see if I can find the camel. Here we are. Thank you, Rumi. You've lost your camel, my friend, and everyone's giving you advice. You don't know where your camel is, but you do know these casual directions are wrong. Even someone who hasn't lost a camel, who's never even owned a camel, gets in on the excitement. Oh yes, I've lost my camel too. A big reward, whoever finds it. He says this in order to be part owner of your camel when you find it. And if you say to someone's suggestions, I don't think so, the imitator imitates that as well. And yet you, says Rumi, must find the camel that you've lost and it is around here somewhere. <laughs> camel, devotion, service, the willingness to kneel, to bow, to honor, even in the desert. We have to begin our spiritual journey and come back to it in a circle again and again with this quality of devotion to give ourselves to what is in front of us. Whether it's your love relationship, which is really an art of devotion, because some days you will like it and some days you will hate it. And some days it will be somewhere in the middle, right? That's how it goes in love. Or your work, or your art, or the community in which you live, or the care for the earth. And what Rumi invites us to do is to offer ourselves, to dedicate ourselves, to surrender, to bow to that which we know is beautiful. This from Bridget Lowry about sitting. In the strange early morning half-light we sit, in the cloudiness of our questioning we sit, in our madness and our clarity we sit, in the midst of too much we sit, in the warm arms of our shared sorrow we sit, in community and in loneliness we sit, in sweet exhaustion we sit, in the blazing energy of being alive, we sit. Here with the singing of crickets, here with each electric bird song, here with the rippling of breezes and the great trees and dry grass, here with the cobwebs and the clouds and the dusty road upon us, us in the sound and the sound in us, us in the world and the world in us, we sit. So this part of spiritual life is humbling, and yet it also offers a healing, because it's not until we stop and commit ourselves to what we love, a person, a place, a species, a community, the body of the earth, 
that we bring ourselves back again and again, even to that which is difficult, can healing take place. So we bow, we devote ourselves. Sometimes it's easy, and sometimes it's just tears and sorrow. Michael Mead, with whom I work, Luis Rodriguez, others, spend a lot of time bringing the art of poetry to prisons, juvenile halls, to the places in the schools where they have the most troubled kids. And they go and they say, give me the worst kids you got. They say, you mean that? Yeah, the ones that act out, the ones that haven't said a word for months and sit in the corner with their hats pulled down, you know. Give us those kids. And after a few days of truth-telling and storytelling, they all write poems. And what they write is what they really have to say. This mutilation, writes one, is but a scratch compared to what hides in the sorrows of my eyes. That from a child who cuts themselves. Nobody ever heard that voice, and there it came out. And after they get the poems, they make the principal or the head of the juvenile hall, probation officers, sit there with the parents and listen to the poems be read. My actions are a scream. Doing drugs is a scream. Hurting folks is a scream. My silence is a scream. Will you ever listen? The healing work of the camel is the willingness of the heart to listen to the tears that we carry, to the cries of our children, to the cries of the earth. As Mary Oliver says, you do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles through the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. Tell me about despair yours, and I will tell you mine. And each day of respect, of listening, of kindness, each sitting, each encounter with another, where we look not at the outer form, but we listen somehow to what is the poetry of this being that has appeared before us, awakens a kind of beauty, even if it's the beauty of our pain. Overcome any bitterness because you were not up to the magnitude of the pain that was entrusted to you, like the mother of the world who carries the pain of the world in her heart. You carry that sorrow in your heart and are called upon to meet it in joy and compassion instead of self-pity. So you're asked to be the healer of the world, and to devote yourself to something that you love. And from this devotion, says Rumi, this willing presence, comes the stage of the lion or the lioness. He goes on, the lion speaks with the roar of authority, having sat or loved or given oneself and faced it all The roar of authority says, I am here in the midst of it all. I have opened my eyes. I've opened my heart. I have stopped running away. The Buddha called his teaching the lion's roar. When people would come and challenge him and say, you know, you've gotten soft. You now eat one good meal a day and you sleep under the trees. And, you know, we great ascetics do the beds of nails and the fasting you know, one rice grain a day, and what kind of a yogi are you? And then the Buddha would reply with his lion's roar. 
and say whatever great ascetic practice has ever been done by yogis in this continent of India, I have done. I've done them all, standing all day in the bright sunlight with my eyes open to the sun to, to dazzle the spirit, fasting until when I touched my stomach, I would feel my backbone. I would sit down and they would say, that man Gotama, the old prince who has become, the young prince who's become an old man as a yogi, he must be dead by now. Look at his body. But I was not. He said, I've done all of that. And that is not what awakens you. He would roar, the lions roar. Let me see if I can find some of the text. He says, my friends, the lion, the king of beasts, comes forth from his lair in the evening and stretches himself out and utters great roars and sets off. And all the animals hear the sound and tremble and quake. Those who live in holes dive in them and the water dwellers hurry to the water and the forest creatures hide within the trees and the elephants tear at the leather straps until they break from them and run in panic for such is the power of the lion or lioness the kings of beasts, mighty, majestic. In the same way, when a sage arises in the world and has sat in the midst of everything and speaks the truth of enlightenment, a knower of the worlds, this is self, this is the origination of self and sorrow, this is the liberation from sorrow and the way leading to liberation then the beings of the world, from the lowest to the highest realms, even the gods in their mansions, quiver and tremble for these words, this lion's roar. It seems that though we thought ourselves permanent, we are not. And although we thought ourselves settled, we are not. And although we thought we would last forever, we shall not. And so it seems we are impermanent unsettled, and nothing lasting belongs to this self. Part of the sutra of the lion's roar. <laughs> Did you ever hear a lion roar? Some of you must have, whether out in Africa or even in the zoo. It's an amazing thing to hear a lion roar because it doesn't roar with the sound of its throat the way we make sound. A lion actually roars with its whole body if you see a lion roar, it's like this huge bellows and this ah oh, sound comes out of the whole body of the lion. And even in the zoo, when the lion roars, all the monkeys, everything that's making noise, they go whoops and they get quiet, right? <laughs> and it's as if the lion is saying, I do not belong in this zoo. No matter how many years that lion has been there, oh, I do not belong in the zoo. So the lion's roar is the invitation to you after you've devoted yourself and sat in the middle of all things to roar the roar of awakening, to rest in the center of the earth and bestow your blessings by saying what is true, what you see and know to be true, and by living from that truth. The lion honors and serves the Dharma and bestows blessings. Here's another version of the lion's roar from the Buddhist tradition. The Buddha said in this text, I consider the position of kings and rulers to be like dust motes in the sunlight. I see the treasures of gold and gem as but broken tiles. I look upon the finest silken robes as tattered rags I see the myriad worlds of the universe as small seeds in the great Indian Ocean, as drops of mud at one's feet. I perceive the teachings of the world to be the illusions of magicians and look upon the judgment of right and wrong as the serpentine dance of dragons and the rise and fall of beliefs as but traces left by the four seasons. I sit in the midst of it all. So part of spiritual life, after devotion and healing and finding our place on this earth, is finding our own royalty, the lioness, the lion within you, your own true nature, 
that dignity that says, I belong on this earth as surely as any other being. I like this poem that's kind of a reminder in a very different way from William Stafford. It's called A Story That Could Be True. If you were exchanged in the cradle and your real mother died without ever telling the story, then no one knows your name. This poem, I'll go on in a moment, this poem talks about something in us that every child knows. I mean, especially when the kid's having a hard day, which kids do, in case you haven't noticed. Some of our kids terribly so. But there's some sense in children on those days that the home that they've been born in and the parents that they have are not really their parents. <laughs> that someday somebody's going to knock on the door or ring the bell and open the door and say, hi, we're here to take you back, right? <laughs> These weren't your parents. A mistake was made. And there's a great you know, chariot or palace or whatever it is awaiting you. So here's that story. It could be true. If you were exchanged in the cradle and your real mother died without ever telling the story, then no one knows your name. And somewhere in the world your father is lost and needs you, but you are far away. And he can never find how true you are, how ready. When the great wind comes and the robberies of the rain, you stand in the corner shivering. The people who go by, you wonder at their calm. They miss the whisper that runs any day in your mind. Who are you really, wanderer? And the answer you have to give, no matter how dark and cold the world around you is, maybe I'm a king. Maybe I'm a queen. If your real mother died and you were exchanged in the cradle, who knows? Maybe I'm the king. And this is the beauty of spiritual practice in the stage of the lion. When one remembers this dignity and presence, this capacity to see the truth and speak the truth and live the one life you have been given fully. And then the last stage that Rumi speaks of, the kneeling of the camel, the roar of the lion, and the innocence of the child, the child of the spirit. Where are you, Hafiz? He writes, Once a group of thieves stole a rare diamond larger than a goose egg. Its value could have easily bought a thousand horses and two thousand acres of the most fertile land in Shiraz. The thieves got drunk that night to celebrate their great haul, but during the course of the evening the effects of the liquor and their mistrust of each other grew to such an extent they decided to divide the stone into pieces. <laughs> of course, then the priceless became lost. Most everyone is lousy at bath and does that to the divine, dissects the indivisible one by thinking or saying, this is my beloved, she looks like this and acts like that. How could that moron over there really be the holy one? They miss the diamond. So that's Hafiz's child of the spirit. Angelus Silesis, if in your heart you make a manger for his birth, then God will once again become a child on this earth. There is, along with the lion's roar, a kind of innocence. So the Buddha said to one of his fellow monks, his senior monks, Mahakasapa, if a forest-dwelling monk is given food, he should gratefully put a handful of it onto the clean stones, thinking, I offer this, share this too, with the birds and the beasts of the forest, that they might live together with me in harmony.
so simple and sweet. The goal of spiritual life, says Suzuki Roshi, is always to keep your beginner's mind. The wonder or the spirit, the line from Mary Oliver where she says, all my life I was a bride married to amazement. When I lived in Bali on sabbatical, oh dear Bali where that bombing happened, those sweet people. When I lived in Bali, sabbatical, two different years, my daughter who grew up here in California, unlike my childhood in the East Coast, had never seen a firefly. But Bali has fireflies. So one night, shortly after we got there, I saw these fireflies out after she'd gone to sleep. She was probably seven years old at the time. And I went out and I caught a few of them, little glass. And I brought them and I put them inside her mosquito net. And then I woke her up. And her eyes opened. And she saw these little bugs, right, with blinking yellow-green lights flying around in the dark night, illuminating her mosquito net. Now I ask you, who could imagine little bugs with blinking lights? Come on. Where did that come from? You know, it is so phenomenal, this world. The human eye. I mean, look at these things. They're these strange things, right? Okay. Look at that. Nobody ever really looks at it. You know, how do we have this orb into which photons, whatever the hell a photon is, comes in and it tickles the retina in certain ways and then the sodium-potassium balance and the nerve changes in this way and it goes to the optic center in the brain and you see all these amazing and strange faces. How could that be? Nobody can explain that. Nobody knows what consciousness is really that sees it. It's completely unknown. It's a mystery. Do you know? Somebody know? Ah. And not knowing is so beautiful. The mystery of life is not a problem to solve. It is a reality to experience. So Zen Master Ryokan, who writes, In my begging bowl, violets and dandelions are mixed together with the Buddhas of the three worlds. If only we could see that way. One of my favorite stories, coming near the end of this talk, some years ago, after I left the monastery, I lived with a woman who I loved very much and her two young children, Seth and Chani. And um, as a treat, when we lived together, as a family for some time, um, I took them to the circus, Barman Bailey Circus in Boston. And they were aged, that time, I don't know, three and five, something like that. I got really good seats, like second row, center, right there. You know, and they liked it. There were the clowns. The clowns were a little scary. Clowns are kind of weird, you know. <laughs> That's okay. And there were the you know, horses, and there were the acrobats, but they were too far away. Little kids don't like look at things that are way over there. They're more interested in, like, the ticket they find on the ground that's crumpled up. And so you take them to the Grand Canyon, and they look and say, look at this pretty stone, Mama, you know, because everything is as mysterious. You don't need the Grand Canyon. Every piece of rock is incredible. So there we are, and the circus is going along, and the tigers jump through hoops, and you know, there's all these incredible acrobats, and then the elephants come out, and they parade in a big circle, and finally the elephants stop, and the ringmaster's doing something, and so right in front of us is this wonderful big elephant. Think about it. Elephants are so strange. I mean, look at that. I mean, who made that? And those big, phenomenal... So we're sitting there, and all of a sudden, the big elephant in front of us pees, right? (laughs) This huge, 
stream of water that makes like a lake there underneath it. And their mouths just drop open. Wow. You know, I mean, preschoolers, look at that. You know? Forget, this is the real circus, right? And then, a little while later, the elephants are still there, the ringmaster's going off, and then the elephant poos, right? Bowling ball size, plop, right? Plop. Plop down, and they're going, wow, <laughs> did, you, did you see that, you know? Oh, my God. When did the smoke learn to fly, says Neruda? When do roots converse? Why is the scorpion poisonous and the elephant benign? And what is the water like in the stars? And what does the tortoise meditate on? And what song does the rain repeat? And where do the birds go to die? What we know is so little, and what we presume is so much. The child of the spirit to allow underneath all these things after our bow of gratitude, our willingness like the camel to love and give ourselves in spite of everything to another person, to a community, to this earth. Our willingness to speak the truth as the lion and say, yes, this I know to be justice. This I know in this world of warfare and greed and racism. This I know to be generosity and love and fearlessness, to speak this. And most of all, to see with that spirit of mystery and amazement, and in the end realize that this mystery is what we're given for such a short time. Who are you really in this body for such a short while? Is this who you are, this human form? Or maybe if we sit and open beyond the small sense of self, there is that great sense of mystery in space and knowing that is the unborn, timeless, ever-present. Listen for it, for there's freedom in that for you. In any moment, it's just a breath away to return to. And then comes the most wonderful joy, like those children. I guess the last story I'll tell is the one of the Dalai Lama at Madison Square Garden, because it fits so well here. You know, every year or two or three, the Dalai Lama now will travel around the world and in certain places, he's made it a point to do the highest of the Tibetan teachings, the Kalashakra Tantra, the highest of his traditions teachings of the Galupas, which is the tantric teachings on the creation of time, the wheel of birth and death, and the creation of time out of nothingness, out of eternity. The time that exists for us for a short time and then vanishes so that we know that what we are exists both in time and in that which is timeless. So they set up this big throne in the middle of Madison Square Garden, and there's five or 10,000 people there, and there are all the Tibetan lamas around the Dalai Lama chanting, you know, with their great chanting and their big horns that they kind of blow, and the cymbals crashing, and this beautiful kind of ritual to awaken the spirit so that this great teaching of the nature of time and the timeless can be given. And then the Dalai Lama comes in and he goes up this throne that's been made covered with silk brocade and carpeting and gets to the top which has these two mattresses that were placed there for him to sit on comfortably for these days underneath the 
brocade, and he sits down, and it bounces a little bit, and he smiles. <laughs> Dalai Lama. And he bounces again, <laughs> smiles a little bit more, and then smiles some more, and starts bouncing up and down like a kid <laughs> on a bed. And there he is in the middle of Madison Square Garden, <laughs> giving the highest teachings of the Kala Chakra Tantra on the nature of the creation of worlds out of nothingness. And before he does so, bouncing up and down with happiness and joy in the mystery. Don't forget the spirit of a poet that lies in you. It is there. And the world needs from you your beauty almost more than anything else in these times. It does. To offer your beauty and to see its beauty. And that will bring you freedom. Let's sit for just a moment. And then before we go out into this autumn evening, a simple chant. When you meet someone in India, you put your hands together and say Namaste, which means I honor the divine in you, or I see you, I see who's really in there, behind all those veils. And the root of that word Namaste is Namo, the first word of the many Buddhist texts, I honor, I bow to. So I'd like us to chant Namo nine times, and you can bow to this blue-green globe, to the people that you care for, to the places where there's sorrow, and that ask for your concern and compassion, to the spirit of Lee Weinstein who died unexpectedly a few days ago, to the birthday of Jean, to everyone in this room, and to the spirit that can go forth from wherever people gather in silence, or in poetry, or in song, or prayer, to bring their beauty back to the earth. Na mo na mo na mo add harmony
May your week be filled with blessings, with the devotion of the camel and the roar of the lion and the innocence of the child. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.